Welcome to the Trad Dads Podcast, where we examine cultural and political issues through the lens of traditional thought. Okay, so today I'm going to bring you a bonus episode uh, in which I will be reading Vix Pervenet, uh, an encyclical, well, a letter uh, to the Italian clergy uh, by Pope Benedict XIV in 1745. Uh, and the purpose of this is to provide a, a full reading of this letter. Uh, and then after this, I'm going to do one or maybe two episodes uh, kind of dealing with some of the uh, uh, lack of clarity, I think, that, that this particular letter brings to the, 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 the issue of usury. I think there is a reason to have some lack of clarity in, in the, the, what this, what this uh, letter means for usury, but I think once you dive in and you really analyze uh, everything that's being said, you kind of you kind of see that there's um, you know while it maybe had generated some some wiggle room uh, in the eyes of some people I think that you, if you take the whole thing uh, together um, it, it doesn't it doesn't allow what what some people think it allows um, and so anyway I'll, I'll get to reading the encyclical now and then uh, check out those other episodes um, for some analysis Vix Pervenet on Usury and Other Dishonest Prophets by Pope Benedict XIV, 1745 To the Venerable Brothers, Patriarchs, Archbishops, Bishops, and Ordinary Clergy of Italy Venerable Brothers, Greetings and Apostolic Benediction Hardly had the new controversy, namely whether certain contracts should be held valid, come to our attention when several opinions began spreading in Italy that hardly seemed to agree with sound doctrine. We decided that we must remedy this. If we did not do so immediately, such an evil might acquire new force by delay and silence. If we neglected our duty, it might even spread further, shaking those cities of Italy so far not affected. Therefore, we decided to consult with a number of the cardinals of the Holy Roman Church, who are renowned for their knowledge and competence in theology and canon law. We also called upon many from the regular clergy, who were outstanding in both the faculty of theology and that of canon law. We chose some monks, some mendicants, and finally some of, from the regular clergy. As presiding officer, we appointed one with degrees in both canon and civil law who had lengthy court experience. We chose the past July 4 for that, for that meeting at which we explained the nature of the whole business. We learned that all had known and considered it already. When we ordered them to consider carefully all aspects of the matter, meanwhile searching for a solution, after this consideration, they were to write out their conclusions. We did not ask them to pass judgment on the contract which gave rise to the controversy, since the many documents they would need were not available. Rather, we asked that they established a fixed teaching on usury, since the opinions recently spread abroad seemed to contradict the church's doctrine. All compiled with these orders. All complied with these orders. They gave their opinions publicly in two convocations, the first of which was held in our presence last July 18, the other last August 1. Then they submitted their opinions in writing to the secretary of the convocation. Indeed, they proved to be of one mind in their opinions. The nature of the sin called usury has its proper place and origin in a loan contract. This financial contract between consenting parties demands by its very nature that one return to another only as much as he has received. 
The sin rests on the fact that sometimes the creditor desires more than he has given. Therefore he contends some gain is owed to him beyond that which he loaned, but any gain which exceeds the amount he gave is illicit and usurious. One cannot condone the sin of usury by arguing that the gain is not great or excessive, but rather moderate or small. Neither can it be condoned by arguing that the borrower is rich, nor even by arguing that the money borrowed is not left idle, but is spent usefully, either to increase one's fortune, to purchase new estates, or to engage in business transactions. The law governing loans consists necessarily in the equality of what is given and returned. Once the equality has been established, whoever demands more than that violates the terms of the loan. Therefore, if one receives interest, he must make restitution according to the commutative bond of justice. Its function in human contracts is to assure equality for each one. This law is to be observed in a holy manner. If not observed exactly, reparation must be made. By these remarks, however, we do not deny that at times, together with the loan contract, certain other titles, which are not at all intrinsic to the contract, may run parallel with it. From these other titles, entirely just and legitimate reasons arise to demand something over and above the amount due on the contract. Nor is it denied that it is very often possible for someone, by means of contracts differing entirely from loans, to spend and invest money legitimately, either to provide oneself with an annual income, or to engage in legitimate trade and business. From these types of contracts, honest gain may be made. There are many different contracts of this kind. In these contracts, if equality is not maintained, whatever is received over and above what is fair is a real injustice. Even though it may not fall under the precise rubric of usury, since all reciprocity, both open and hidden, is absent, restitution is obligated. Thus, if everyone is, everything is done correctly and weighed in the scales of justice, these same legitimate contracts suffice to provide a standard and a principle for engaging in commerce and fruitful business for the common good. Christian minds should not think that gainful commerce can flourish by usuries or other similar injustices. On the contrary, we learn from divine revelation that justice raises up nations. Sin, however, makes nations miserable. But you must diligently consider this, that some will falsely and rashly persuade themselves and such people can be found anywhere, that together with loan contracts there are other legitimate titles, or, accepting loan contracts, they might convince themselves that other just contracts exist, for which it is permissible to receive a moderate amount of interest. Should anyone think like this, he will oppose not only the judgment of the Catholic Church on usury, but also common human sense and natural reason. Everyone knows that man is obliged in many instances to keep his fellows with a simple to help his fellows with a simple, plain loan. Christ himself teaches this. Do not refuse to lend to him who asks you. In many circumstances, no other true and just contract may be possible, except for a loan. Whoever therefore wishes to follow his conscience must first diligently inquire if, along with the loan, another category exists, by means of which the gain he seeks may be lawfully attained. This is how the cardinals and theologians, and the men most conversant with the canons, whose advice we had asked for in this most serious business, explained their opinions. 
Also, we devoted our private study to this matter before the congregations were convened, while they were in session, and again after they had been held. For we read the opinions of these outstanding men most diligently. Because of this, we approve and confirm what is contained in the opinions above. Since the professors of canon law and theology, scriptural evidence, the decrees of previous popes, and the authority of church councils and the fathers all seem to enjoin it. Besides, we certainly know the authors who hold the opposite opinions, and also those who either support and defend those authors, or at least who seem to give them consideration. We are also aware that the theologians of regions neighboring those in which the controversy had its origin undertook the defense of truth with wisdom and seriousness. Therefore, we address these encyclical letters to all Italian archbishops, bishops, and priests to make all of you aware of these matters. Whenever synods are held, or sermons preached, or instructions on sacred doctrine given, the above opinions must be adhered to strictly. Take great care that no one in your diocese dares to write or preach the contrary. However, if anyone should refuse to obey, he should be subjected to the penalties imposed by the sacred canons on those who violate apostolic mandates. Concerning the specific contract which caused these new controversies, we decide nothing for the present. We also shall not decide now about the other contracts in which the theologians and canonists lack agreement. Rekindle your zeal for piety and your conscientiousness, so that you may execute what we have given. First of all, show your people with persuasive words that the sin and vice of usury is most emphatically condemned in the sacred scriptures, that it assumes various forms and appearances in order that the faithful, restored to liberty and grace by the blood of Christ, may again be driven headlong into ruin. Therefore, if they desire to invest their money, let them exercise diligent care, lest they be snatched by cupidity, the source of all evil. To this end, let them be guided by those who excel in doctrine and the glory of virtue. In the second place, some trust in their own strength and knowledge to such an extent that they do not hesitate to give answers to those questions which demand considerable knowledge of sacred theology and of the canons. But it is essential for these people also to avoid extremes, which are always evil. For instance, there are some who judge these matters with such, with such severity that they hold any profit derived from money to be illegal and usurious. In contrast to them, there are some so indulgent and so remiss that they hold any gain whatsoever to be free of usury. Let them not adhere too much to their private opinions. Before they give their answer, let them consult a number of eminent writers. Then let them accept those views which they understood to be confirmed by knowledge and authority. And if a dispute should arise when some contract is discussed, let no insults be hurled at those who hold the contrary opinion, nor let it be asserted that it must be severely censured, particularly if it does not lack the support of reason and of men of reputation. Indeed, clamorous outcries and accusations break the chain of Christian love and give offense and scandal to the people. In the third place, those who desire to keep themselves free and untouched by the contamination of usury and to give their money to another in such a manner that they may receive only legitimate gain, should be admonished, admonished to make a contract beforehand. In the contract, they should explain the conditions and what gain they expect from their money. This will not only greatly help to avoid concern and anxiety, but will also confirm the contract in the realm of public business. This approach also closes the door on controversies, which have arisen more than once, 
since it clarifies whether the money, which has been loaned without apparent interest, may actually contain concealed usury. In the fourth place, we exhort you not to listen to those who say that today the issue of usury is present in name only, since gain is almost always obtained from money given to another. How false is this opinion, and how far removed from the truth? We can easily understand this if we consider that the nature of one contract differs from the nature of another. By the same token, the things which result from these contracts will differ in accordance with the varying nature of the contracts. Truly an obvious difference exists between gain which arises from money legally, and therefore can be upheld in the courts of both civil and canon law, and gain which is illicitly obtained, and must therefore be returned according to the judgments of both courts. Thus it is clearly invalid to suggest, on the grounds that some gain is usually received from money lent out, that the issue of usury is irrelevant in our times. These are the chief things, chief things we wanted to say to you. We hope that you may command your faithful to observe what these letters prescribe, and that you may undertake effective remedies if disturbances should be stirred up among your people because of this new controversy over usury, or if the simplicity and purity of doctrine should come corrupted, should become corrupted in Italy. Finally, to you and to the flock committed to your care, we impart the apostolic benediction. Given in Rome at St. Mary Major, November 1, 1745, the sixth year of our pontificate. So there you have Vix Prevenit, and what I will do is, uh, in the coming weeks, I will release uh, one episode or maybe two, uh, analyzing this and trying to deal with, um, you know, some of the alleged, uh, I guess, uh, lack of clarity uh, in this in, in this letter. Uh, so, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Trad Dads podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider giving us a five-star rating on iTunes. It really helps us out.